All right. This week, we are doing basically two things. Number one, we are finishing up on our bi the big picture of the book of Hebrews on the whole. So what we are basically doing still for day one, two, and three of this week's work was overview. Okay? Um, and then we jumped into days four and five, and we began to do our observations for chapter one. I can tell you that right now we're just touching the tip of the water, though, on that chapter one. Although it feels like at this point you probably um, feel like you've gone through this so many times, you're going, yeah, 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 I know this, but really you do not. You do not. You wait. It's going to be so exciting when we start digging some of these really deeper truths out starting next week because this week you, all you were able to really have the time for, uh, for was to just get your uh, keywords marked and um, to do a little bit of list making. I hope you did do that. Those lists are so important. How many of you did lists out of chapter one? Did you do more than just one did you do three or four lists at least? Awesome. Because it is such a teaching moment, and we're going to hang on to that because it's a teaching moment. We're going to share it with, with one another in a little bit. Okay, so let's start by going back and looking at um, the main thing that we did in our days one, two, and three, which was to come to a place of seeing some major segment divisions. Now, segment divisions is one of those things that... Um, is a process. And although Kay is starting us out with, uh, basically she's setting the concept in your mind, starting you to think about the idea of that segment divisions are a possibility. But honestly, it isn't until sometimes that you're in a book for months sometimes, or, or for sure weeks, but sometimes months, before you really start to finally go, oh, you know what, I think this is a segment division here, or this subject could pre prepare or pre present for us a segment divi division. In your how-to study book, did you notice it at the end of um, the uh, overview segment, there's a whole section on Segment division information, did any of you look that up by chance? Yes, some of you did? Okay, I'm going to look here and see if I can find it real quick. I, sh I thought I marked it, but look at how many marks I've got on this book. I don't know how I did that. Okay, hold on, i got to get in the right chapter. It's in chapter 2. Um, all right, here it's right at the very end. Page, in my book, this one is it's on page 41. Clearly, identified clearly segment division. So I'm going to read it to you because for some of you, you did not do it. A segment division is a major division in a book, such as a group of verses or chapters that deal with the same subject, doctrine, person, place, or event. So you can break your book down based on different kinds of concepts. Same book, but different kinds of divisions will develop, right? Um, now, just uh, as you don't subjectively create chapter themes, you don't subjectively create divisions, segment divisions. Rather, you discover them from the, from the text. The context of the book determines the segment. Not every book has clearly defined segments, however. 
And if the book does not divide into segments, you'll find that the number and type of divisions will vary according to the type of lit literature that you are studying and according to the size of a book. The book might be divided uh, in these ways. So here are some possibilities that you might want to think about. Uh, and it doesn't apply to every book, so th these won't all apply to Hebrews. Dates, places, topics, doctrines, reigns of kings, major characters, and major events. Now, do you guys remember when we did the book of Acts? We, we had two major characters in that book, didn't we? Who were they? Peter and Paul. So we had a, de a segment division went up to a certain chapter. I think it was up through chapter 8. We see Peter as the dominant subject uh, in that one, the, the dominant person. Then those last chapters all the way to the end were uh, Paul. So that was one, that's an example of one way to find a segment division when that was on a person. Although the book of Acts was not about Peter or Paul, Peter and Paul being two uh, subjects, whoops, I can't look win with this thing, it's, all right, um, but them being two major subjects is a possibility for a segment division. Now, why might that be an important thing to notice? What do you think you gain from paying attention or noticing that maybe people divide something or places or time factors or... Absolutely. Quite honestly, do you remember what the um, the major theme was in Acts? That it was that there was the birthing of the church, and you will be my witnesses in where Jerusalem and Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. So when so do you think that even looking at them actually helped to develop that segment, that particular outline of the book? Yes, it did. So these are some of the reasons. If you, you know, as an inductive student, we're not just taking the scriptures and saying, well, we just want to kind of know about things, right? And we're just moving on. We are really the deep thinkers in the Christian world. We were talking again about that article I read last week or the week before about um, you know, the ignorance of the church and how people, they're so illiterate. Yes, the illiteracy. That's a better word, huh? The illiteracy of the church. And um, what a shame it is. And it's such an embarrassment, really. But this group, we are not that kind of group. We are the ones who are trying to become literate. And in doing so, sometimes it requires that you just slow down enough, take the time to ponder on things, chew it over, analyze it, look at it different ways. The scripture actually says, uh, he says to Joshua, is to meditate on the word day and night, that thou mayest to do according to all that is written therein, and then your way will be prosperous, and then you will have success, good success. So for you and I, the idea of looking for segment divisions might seem like a mundane step in this, and some of you might say, eh, I'm not that important to me, it's not that interesting to me. But I'm trying to encourage you to see the value of it. The value of it is it's another way to meditate on God's word. It's another way to see the, um, the context of the book better, deeper. It's also a way to break it down. Sometimes there's going to be some big aha moments for you in it. You're going to see, ah, 
wow, look at that. I didn't notice that before. I see what he's doing. Most important for us in um, looking for, for instance, our chapter themes, to find those chapter titles that we come up with, is you see your author's flow of thought, right? But in that flow of thought, you can, you're breaking this down through segments by saying, as he was, was shooting for the goal at the end of accomplishing this big picture of what we're looking at right now, which is setting context, to, set, to accomplish that goal, he is going along. And in this book, he's doing it how in each chapter? What is he doing in each chapter? There's comparison. So there's a subject and then another subject and another subject. And each of these subjects are being compared to who? To Jesus himself. And so you see that much of it. Well, now what we're going to do today is try to look to say, okay, he's going to do it by all these 13 or more subjects. But how does he also do it in bigger clumps? Is there, a, is there a way to clump some of these things together so that you say, oh, in this segment, it's all about this. Now he's moving on to this. What is amazing to me about it when I start to do this stuff is how supernaturally God wrote. There is, there is absolutely no way a human being could, could think all these things through in the way that, that they are written and really come out so systematic so articulately put and so accurate so that there is an actual, I mean, if I wrote it, it would be this subject here and then that one is over there. And now this one's over here. And oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you, <laughs> you know, and I'd be coming back to something. Uh, some of our phone conversations are that way, right? We, we talk in circles. <laughs> okay. So one way to identify them, dates, places, topics, doctrines, reigns of kings, major characters or major events. For instance, the book of Romans divides into two segments. Chapters 1 to 11 are doctrinal. Chapters 12 to 16 are practical. One of the things I noticed right away is there are a lot more doctrinal than there are practical, huh, in that. That's, an, that's interesting to me. In the book of Genesis, chapters 1 to 11 focus on, focuses on four events, the chap, uh, and chapters 12 to 50 on four major characters. So it starts out with events, then it moves to characters. Oh, that's interesting. Did did you ever think of Genesis in that way? It's kind of cool, huh? The book of Revelation, the divisions are clearly stated in Revelation 119. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. The segment divisions are, the, um, and so that's the segment divisions. They are the things which you have seen, chapter 1, the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, which are the churches, and the things which shall take place after these things. Four segment divisions in the Gospel of John. Look at uh, the at-a-glance chart on page 145. She tells you to do, the, to do that. All right. Um, Discerning segment divisions requires time, practice, and a familiarity with the content of the book and the context in which it's laid out. That's why before you start looking for segment divisions, you have to do at least some overview work, right? So you can kind of get the big picture of things and see what's going on in the book on the whole. And then you start looking for segment divisions. However, this is just your first brush at it. So just know that. Today we are going to look at, we may only get one or two pretty clearly defined segment divisions laid out today, but as the time moves on, you might develop others. Others might 
become apparent to you. And when they do, maybe you could remember to share them with us. Say, hey, you know what? I think I saw a segment division in this book uh, this week when I was looking at this. And then we can share it with one another. It would be good. Usually you will discover even more possible divisions after you've studied the book for a while. Therefore, the segment division part of your at-a-glance chart will be developed more completely as you become more familiar with a book. Okay, so she says, well, my friend, that's how you do an overview of a book, and that's the most uh, crucial part of all the inductive study, for it sets the context for correctly interpreting and applying the text. So that's where we're at today. We're, we're at the very tail end. We're ready to just set it up. Let's do, before we start to try to handle our um, segment divisions, let's just refresh our minds about our better than statements that we came up with last week. And I want to ask, did any of you actually refine your, your lists at all? Did you actually change any of your titles after you got back in there? I did, too. There were a couple things I went in there, and I said, oh, I missed that. I, I see that now. So I hope you all did, too. So let's start, though, by just, um, if it's possible, I would like one word, um, keywords, I guess, from each chapter to put in on our chart up here. I've, I've made a chart that's going to be our segment division chart here on this other board. Uh, titled each of those little segments, 1 through 13, for each chapter. And I would like to put one word in each block so that we know what is the major thing in there. We can elaborate on it and discuss it, but it's going to help us then when we do our segment divisions together. Okay, so that you can visualize them. So you give me, in chapter one, what was the major subject there? Angels. All right. And concerning angels, what did you learn? That God is better than them, right? And I know Heinz and I talked about this last week about the, the that term better than it kind of bothered him just a little bit and did any of you do a word study on better by chance yes you did Susan what did you learn about that word better Okay. All right. That's a okay. That's all really good. So it, again, it just gives us more adjectives about better, greater, uh, of more quantity, and so forth. But yes, go on. Oh, good. Tell us what you see there. A more excellent name. Okay. So the description could then be not just better, but more excellent, right? Okay. Did anyone else do a word study? No? One of the words that I saw when I kept going in my other, you know, I have like four or five different dictionaries I can go into. One of them said, use the word superior. And I really liked that one because it gives a, in the English language, I think it gives a more definitive concept of not just better as in uh, what are in our conversations. Well, then there can be something even beyond that, but rather superior, which kind of puts a, a, a permanent place of that's the top of the mark, superior. Yes. To me, it was subjective because it says all things have been subjected to him. 
Very good. Excellent, Carrie. So she's saying it's the word subjected to in the context of what's written in the in the um, text itself is that they are subjected to him. That is really good, too, because one of my other uh, Greek dictionaries talked about the, the idea of this word being a word which is considered a comparative word. It makes a compare by the nature of the word. It's a comparison of one thing to another. In which case, if you look at it from that perspective, anything that's better than something else is the top, right? Uh huh. In some ways, yes, and we're going to develop that a little bit because I, I think we hopefully all together came to some really interesting insights about the emphasis that's actually placed in here. Our natural brain tends to go to right, right there on the surface. That's why we don't want to stay on the surface as inductive students. We want to go deeper than that. So on the surface, it looks like he's just making a comparison between Jesus and angels, right? And that in the end, it's just showing then that Jesus is better than the angels, but the why is Jesus better than the angels is the key. And then it switches your focus then from angels onto who Jesus is. And that's exactly what you should do. Now, j just to, before we move on with this word-by-word -word thing, I want to ask just one general question. If, well, maybe let's finish this first. Let's do this first. I'll do it in this order. Tell me what, okay, so in, in two, what is the major subject there? Man or flesh, right? Okay, and three, Moses. All right, four, rest, the rest of God. Five, and on this one, we have to put a, qual a qualifier because it's going to come up again. High priest designated. Okay, six. Okay, Christ, seven. Yeah, eternal works too. High priest forever. I kind of like the idea of the eternal because forever almost sounds like it started at a point and then was, but the idea that he's eternal, I, I think I am going to actually switch that just because I like it better. Either one works, but I kind of think eternal. Uh, okay. And when we get to develop that, I can't wait to see how y'all see all that. Okay, number eight. Nine, I should be checking you guys. <laughs> I, I'm trusting you totally. Nine, t tabernacle? Uh-huh. Okay. Ten, sacrifice. All right. Eleven, faith. 
And it's not just faith, but it's faith what? Faith provided, okay. Because that was the distinction. I know. We had to qualify a couple of them because otherwise it doesn't make sense. Okay, 12s. Okay, now here's one I switched. What, what did you see in 12? What did we say it was last week? I can't remember. The, and it is perfecter of faith. Okay, so that is a true statement. He is the perfecter of our faith. Um, one of the things that I, you know, if you are trying to do this, if you look at the way this is, is this is a better than statement, right? He's better than something in that chapter. And there's got to be a comparison. Yes, he's the perfecter of our faith. That's, that is a, conclus- a conclusion kind of a statement. But what is he better than? He's not better than his own perfecting, right? So, although he's definitely better than we are once we're perfected. But tell me, is there any subject that gets brought up in chapter 12 that he's compared to as being better than? Yes. Um, not exactly, because, although, yes, the statement is made in there, because it, but that is, it's almost like a passing statement. There's nothing else hangs on to that. But keep going. There is a subject in that chapter 12. His, okay, his blood. Do you think, cha- how about go to 22? Do you see the but? Because a but is always an indicator for us that there's a comparison, right? It's a contrast statement. So in this case, he's talking about Jesus being better than what then? Yeah, in this one, he's talking about them coming to a certain mountain, correct? He says, but you come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. So what he's talking about here, since so far as we've moved on this, he is speaking to a, a audience of of Jews, correct, who have been approaching God through what? Through the law. And, and, and approaching what mountain? Mount Zion. But not, Mount, but not the true Mount Zion, right? And in the context of the Jews, everything else he talked about previous to this was, was them coming to a different kind of mountain. What was it? What mountain did they approach Jesus from where they received their law, Sinai. So it's a contrast between what they received at the mountain at Sinai, which they are now living under, and it's comparing them to now a new, a new way to approach God who is approached at the true Mount Zion, the one which is heavenly. Do you see the contrast in there? So um, I, I thought in order to try to be consistent in this, I... For me, I got convinced on this. I got, I got a little detour on my brain. I thought, you know, maybe this is the approaching part of the subject. So far, we've talked about what is provided, what is provided, what is provided, and now it's where we approach him.
where before they were in a, in a scenario in their life where they had to go to where? That temple, right? Do we have to go to the temple now? Where do we approach our God? The, the one who is in the heavenly, we approach him into the, into the holy of holies, and this is the, the Mount Zion, the true Mount Zion. What do you think? Oh, okay. Okay. And, so I and the reason I made the switch was because as I meditate on it, I'm going, okay, we're, look, we're trying to look at the flow of thought here, correct? And so we're just trying to see systematically where is, what is he doing with this Jewish-minded people that he's drawing them along as he goes. And so we see how he is taking them through the, the rest of God, the high priest, that he is the Christ, the new covenant, the, a better tabernacle, a better sacrifice. He, and he is provided, it's faith that has now been realized and provided in him. And now where do we approach him? Right? And I would, would you say that this might be a, actually, even though it's, it seems like a smaller statement in here, that it actually might rise to become a much more profound issue for the Jewish mind. It's not going to be as important for you and me because we're not locked into that. We've never been trained to have to go to Jerusalem and to worship at the temple. But here we have a, a, a God who's saying, you are worshiping me and you're offering your sacrifices in a different way, right? It's not the sacrifices of the temple system any longer. It's now the sacrifices which are pleasing and acceptable to him. And he and he gives a list of multitudes of them in that segment, right? All right. So, um, a better mountain, yeah, which is the true mountain. Because when we enter into the tabernacle through Christ, it, we enter into the presence of God, which is in the true mountain, which is in heaven. I mean, it's... Okay. A better hope. Okay. I like that. Do you guys like that one? Okay. Well, we'll put it up there and we'll hang on to that one. And this is what's great about it is all of this is fluid still. You guys see that, right? We're, we're still in, we're not in, we're not, because we haven't studied this long enough to be locked in definite on things. Um, Let's put up here a better mountain. Is number 12 covered the subject of mediator? Because of that. That's right. That's right. 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 Which is why I ended up on the better mountain, because I said, because it's a better mountain. In the old system, there was only a certain way to please God, right? You must serve him and worship him in the place which I have determined. You will come to this place. You will bring these sacrifices, and each one of these must be done in certain very systematic ways. Now it's a new thing. 
And so since we're now under a new covenant, we're now entering into a better tabernacle with a better sacrifice. It is now faith that's been provided is what you were hoping for, but now is realized. And now you come to a different mountain. The mountain is no longer, you're not locked into the service of the, of the temple mount. You now have come to the mountain in the heavenlies. It's to a holy mountain. And that's how I got there. And it's basically saying what you said, Craig, only I'm still landing on the mountain as the contrast. But, but all that you said is exactly correct. He's in that segment. He is, he is telling them it's a different way now of serving God. Before you served in the regimen of, of the law, now you're in the freedom of the spirit at a different mountain. Uh, well, there's that too, and that's a different subject matter. In, he, in this, okay, let's start talking a little bit about some of these segments because what, what do we see on the whole in this last portion of the book? What is the emphasis on? response do this do this do this do and it's there's lots of things about serving your brother and uh uh i care now i'm a blank hold on all the let us statements in there right uh let us not neglect to show hospitality let us remember the prisoners uh, hold marriage in high regard remember those who led you and and consider the result and, con and the conduct of their life and imitate their faith um Let's not be carried away by strange and various teachings. So part of it is, yes, Susan, approaching him in the, in the, in the idea of entering into the tabernacle of God, which I think of that Ephesians um, passage where it says, you know, boldly enter into the throne room of God. This isn't just about entering into the throne room. This is about serving him also. It's, there's some physical qualities of what are we going to do now that we're in this new thing. And I think for the Jews, do you think that that is quite a significant subject for this author to have to handle? Have you ever known people who are locked into religious systems which are all about the serving and basically checking boxes? And when you live in that way and you come into true faith in Christ Jesus and you are set free from that, I think this is where we're, hit, we're hitting it here in chapter 12 is this new mountain. It's a new a way to approach God, and it's not under the regimented systematic lists that you have to fulfill, the things that have to be by the law accomplished, but rather you're now at the true mountain of God, the Mount Zion in the heavenlies. So it's a freedom statement in a way. It sets them free from being locked into where they were. Possibly. Okay, so we'll just leave that for now. We'll just, you know, we're going to play with it and see what else comes up. We may change our mind, and me too, at some point, okay? Um, and then one more, one more better than in chapter 13, a better altar. And so to me, in a way, this flows. The mountain and the altar, which are together, right? So in a way, it seems like it actually works, in my mind at the moment. <laughs> okay, so, all right, so now we've got the point. What I would like to ask now is just a kind of a personal preference kind of a question. If you were going to be deserted on an island and you could have just one chapter from Hebrews, which chapter would you choose and why? Why? 
Okay, 11. Why 11? Okay, so that takes it for you, makes it a real practical exhorting kind of a, of a message in Hebrews then. Okay, very good. Okay, hold on. 12 and? Because it, it tells us about the unshakable kingdom and all the things that I would be looking forward to and aware of. Ah, so your goal then is, is set before you constantly and you'd constantly be reminded that there's an unshakable kingdom that you're looking forward to. Okay, James? And why one? Okay, so the emphasis there is describing it really just just brings out his divinity and, and it basically you know basically says Jesus is Yahweh. It's is kind of what it's established. Right. The Yahweh of the Old Testament is Jesus. So you choose one because one pulls you into the identity of who God is and it anchors you in the quality that he is God. All right, very good. Very interesting. Um, any others? All right. No, no other minds that are turned on this morning and thinking a little bit? No. <laughs> I wake up in the morning, especially after I've had a day or two like I usually do on preparing for this, and I'm in the shower, and, it's all, and all this stuff is like flooding through my head, and I'm, I just get all these questions start going, and this was one of them. I thought, what if I were on an island and could only have one chapter? I wonder which one I'd want to have with me. <laughs> so, all right. All right, so now we've kind of got the flow. Let's just review it. We've got, uh, starting with chapter one, I'm going to just run through the whole thing. Angels, man, Moses, rest, high priest uh, designated, Christ the hope, high priest eternal, Covenant, tabernacle, sacrifice, faith provided, mountain and altar. This is the only one that's off. So he, a greater hope, or I think, I think you might be right on that. That makes, that actually kind of flows better in six, that he's the greater hope. If you're making a comparison, yes. Um, he's a better covenant, so he's a new, we can just add that in, yeah. If you want to, he's a better covenant. He's a better covenant because it is a new covenant. So you would draw that conclusion in, t in time. Okay. So isn't that kind of fun? Just even at this point with this part of the process, what you can start to see is how taking your time and going through and really looking at each of these chapters little by little and each of the major subjects and focusing in on the idea that he is better than something and then really trying to hone it down to what is he better than, what is their emphasis. Once you do that, you can kind of say, okay, now I think I've got the focus here, and I know the author's purpose, so what is the author's purpose in this book? If, did, if, have you thought about a major verse or a key verse that you would use to emphasize that Jesus is better You could just use the title Jesus is Better and not give it a verse because this is the whole book, right? But it, it's kind of fun to have a major, a key verse to focus in on if you can.
Yes. Okay, maybe. I know Kay, I know Kay does that. I, okay, I know what you're talking, are you talking about the fact that he is writing to exhort them? Okay, he, you know, we do know that at the end of the book, he tells, I'm writing that you, and he asks him, bear with this word of exhortation. Right. Right. Yes. Yes. Kind of. But if you had to describe to a friend in an elevator in five seconds, what is the book of Hebrews about? You would tell them what? It's all about Jesus. Jesus is a better covenant. Okay. Okay, so that's good. Okay, there, that might be a good one. Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Now, for a Jewish mind, especially, I mean, because I'm trying to make sure we stay within the context of the book. We are writing to Jewish-minded people. Obviously, these are the, the book is self-titled Hebrews. He is writing to the Hebrew mind, and he is obviously pushing against and trying to drag them into a, a deeper and a better development of their Christian faith, they apparently are still walking a fence. They're struggling with letting go of an old system and really pressing into this new thing called Christianity. And in, and in doing it, therefore, he's, he's apologetically saying, let me explain to you why you can let that go, Right? Right. And for a Jew, that's important. Okay. I can see how you could go there. I could, I can see that. All right. Yes, Carol. Okay. All right. So let's go here. I'm going to start listing. That was 8 1. Um, give me the 8 1. Um, so it, in that one, he is the great high priest. Is that the, the conclusion? The, the apostle and great high priest of our confession? Is that the, what that one is, Carol? Yes, that is exactly, you see, if you stay focused on what you're actually looking at, the reality of what you're looking at is these are Jews who are trying to hang on to their old high priest. You have to. Yes. Yes. And would you say that... Um, this can really have application in our lives even today. Are there people who you know sit on a fence 
they they kind of believe or they say they believe, but they just don't fully embrace it. Is this a subject then that maybe we need to really grab hold of in such a way that then we can we can motivate people through the knowledge that we have and really encourage them to say, look, you can let go of that. You do not have to, it, it is not the legalism of the law. It is not the letter of the law. It is not because all that is what they had under the old covenant. And this author is encouraging these believers um, by showing them a comparison and in that comparison, we use that word better, that Jesus is better. He's actually, I, I thought in a way, I, I'm not trying to get political, but I, I thought, you know, this, this is the year of the Trump, right? <laughs> this is the year of our Trump. No, I know, right. Well, okay. But you hear about it all over the news, right? Uh, Donald Trump is everywhere. But I thought, you know what? In our study here, this is the, this is the book of the Trump. This is Christ trumps everything. Have you guys ever played cards where you play with the Trump suit? You know, and no matter what other card is laid down on the table, your card, if it's a Trump card, will trump it. You, it is master. It is superior. It takes, it takes all their power away. It, it is the supreme authority. So if I trump, lay down on top of your card, no matter what you put down, I get it, right? Well, that's what we see here. This author is systematically going through and laying out any possible uh, objection or any possible uh, distractor. And in every single case, he's saying, my card trumps. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. So, if you, and, and remembering that Christ um, is the fulfillment that this is a the birthing of a new church, a new thing in, a, in an early part of the era of its birthing, that this author is still struggling with this too, still trying to pull them in, out of the old system. And it's at one point in this, does he not get really quite stern about the idea that they may even be missing it? Because if they have not really put their faith in Jesus Christ as the once for all sacrifice, if they keep going back to that temple and sacrificing, then what? They may not even be in faith at all. And they are this close to being burned up. And so he gives an imagery picture in that particular chapter. So this is quite serious. Uh, Martha. Okay, so that would be 8-6 also. All right. Um, do you have a verse for, for me on 12-2? Okay. Okay. Any others? Have you got, did any of you guys pick one out and write it down on your, on your worksheets? I like that one. Well, I, I picked one. I, I picked uh, chapter 10, verse 20. By a new and living way, he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. 
So I chose that Jesus is a, a new and living way to God, a new and living way. You can look at those two verses. Okay, well, that gives us some things to chew on, and you guys can think about those. Um, what you want to do is the idea is the major thing is better than, and the subjects are about the Jews' old system. That's what's their old way, right, their old system. And that is your major contrast in this book. And so when you're looking for a verse, you want to somehow try to come up with something that is very declarative, very crisp, without a lot of, you don't want it to be too wordy. You want to be able to remember it in an elevator in an instant, okay? If somebody were to ask you, what is it about? I could say to my friend in the elevator, it shows us that Jesus is a new and living way to God. It's different than what the Jews had before. And that he is, therefore, the fulfillment. And then you, could, then you can go in and elaborate all of these other ways that he is uh, greater than. Okay, so we've got that much done. Now let's go in and look at some segment divisions then. How many of you were able to develop more than one segment division? Did, any, did you develop at least one? Oh, good, Lois, you're my, you're my star's pupil, so you're going to get the star for the day. So tell me some things that you came up with. How, what are some segments that you saw? Okay, so we're going to say the first four. You said Christ is superior. Okay. Okay. Okay, but she's talking a different subject. So hold your thought for one second because that is another possible segment division, but it would probably be in a different form. I mean, there, the other things before it would be different. So hang on. Tell me. Okay, because it talks about him as a as our perfecter then, right? Okay. Okay, Christ is superior, the priesthood is better and he's our perfecter. Would that work? Does that sound about right? Okay, very good. That's nice. Does everybody follow that? Does anybody have an objection? Do you see it now that she's said it? 
can you see it and say, oh, yeah, I, I agree with that. That looks like a good segment division. You know, because there's no, not going to really be wrong ones per se. I mean, I guess once in a while we could get it wrong, but it would be pretty unusual. But the point to doing segment divisions is for you and I to, again, uh, break the book down into bite-sized pieces, chew it over in our mind, and say, how do I see this systematically flowing, right? What kind of things are clumped together, um, there is one that is super duper obvious where you're going to see a breakdown in, in chapters 1 to, through 10 and then 11 to 13. What do you see going on in 1 to 10 on the whole doctrine? All about doctrine. 1 to 10. And then this is going to be? Or you could call it application. Okay, and so that's 11 to 13. Does everybody see that? When you see the book on the whole now that you're thinking about it, everything in the first 10 chapters is as instruction about who Jesus is and what his relationship is to each of these different subjects that come up. Then the last three chapters we see a huge emphasis then on the let us statements that show us the application of all that's been taught to us previously. Okay. Okay, so we actually get two subjects, and you could break it down then. The priesthood and the covenant could become two segments, right? Uh-huh. Okay. So you actually hung on to what Lois said, Christ's superiority, and you pulled it all the way through, and then you put here what? The application then of the fact that he is superior. Okay. So that's another one that can go on here. I should put that. Christ's. Sufficient. S U. How do you spell sufficient? Thank you. Sufficient. C. I need spell check on my board. Okay. <laughs> Christ superiority and sufficiency. Ah, oh, no. I want one of those. Okay. One to ten. And then the last part. So he's sufficient here and then. Here what? Well, what we can see at this point is it seems like application is the obvious thing in those last three choice, uh, chapters, correct? Everyone is seeing that. Okay. 
Okay, so the first part, we have the system, and what is the first introduction into the system? How about this? Yeah, the source. The source. Sounds like something out of Star Wars, huh? (laughs) The source and the system. (laughs) And the the solution. (laughs) See how fun this can be, you guys. (laughs) Yes, Carrie. Uh-huh. Yes. And so I have a book that I I should have done more of these, huh? Talking about the problems and how Moses came to the world. Okay, wait a second. Wait, wait, wait. I'm lost. One through five are the copies? Right, except chapter one doesn't do that, because chapter one says who he is. Right, long ago he spoke to prophets and angels. Okay, so the long ago is the long ago part is what you capitalize. Okay, so so it would be the copies, and then you did uh, six through ten is what the realities. That's kind of cool. Okay. The re- to come. I'm going to change it so that we... I like this. Okay. All right. Nice. That's kind of interesting. The copies, the realities, and what's to come. Mm-hmm. I get it. I'm with you. Yeah. I can see it. I mean, it's it, it would not have come to me right away, but you know, once it's up there, I'm like, well, I can see I can see that that would would be a way that you could look at a breakdown on this book that it starts out with showing what was promised. What, okay, let me give you one idea. Um I did similar 1 through 3. Okay, so 1 through 3 is what was promised. And then I did 4 to 7 as uh, what we now have. We were close on some of this. And then um, 8 to 11, what was fulfilled. And then I did 12 to 13, what is yet to come? Now, those are not as clear. Now, you can see why we're starting to get lower on our possibilities of segment divisions because, you know, especially right now, we haven't been in it long enough to really develop a full understanding of every chapter so that we can really see the, the, the true message in it. We may change our mind and say, oh, that was really a bad breakdown. And that's okay. 
The point is, in the inductive process, is, is you ponder it. You think it through. You make yourself lists, make yourself charts, make yourself some timelines. And in doing that, the process helps you to evaluate and meditate on it. Then, as we systematically go through chapter by chapter, we are going to tear it apart. We're going to break it down. We're going to look at cross-references. We're going to look at word studies. We're going to see how it all fits in its reality and its truth. And once we develop it, then we're going to finalize some things. So as we move along, these possibilities of, of uh, divisions will probably change some. Our titles may change. We even may see some things that we hadn't seen before. One of the things, though, that I would say at this point we can absolutely put our handle on is 1 to 10 is doctrine, 11 to 13 is, is sanctification or application, right? So at least you have one major segment division that you can pretty much write in your Bible, and it's probably not going to change. But the others, you might want to just hold on to them and ponder on them a little bit. Help If you hadn't thought of the breakdown of the Bible, uh, this particular book rather, in these manners, th these are some things that you can consider, okay? All right, well, that was one part of your homework this week we've managed to get through. Now we're ready to move on and do our observations of um, chapter one. Just the basics. We're not ready to go into a whole lot of detail on them. We just want to get the, the most important points out here. So let's start in chapter one with our key words. What key words did you mark for chapter one? God and Jesus. Okay, Jesus and God and angels. Any other keywords? Better. It's same thing. It's a synonym, but and that's right. Put more excellent, better. Oh, I kind of like that one too. God said. So in regards to God, I think I'm just going to add it on here. God said actually is the best key word in there as far as marking God. God is significant, but it's, it's more interestingly, when you made your lists, did any of you notice that when God is referenced, it's always God saying something about someone else? Did you notice that? Who does he keep talking about? His son. So that in the end, even though God looks like cause someone earlier, and I don't remember if it was from this class or the evening group, but they were talking about how they kept seeing that God was significant. Well, God's important in this. I'm going, well, yes, he is. But hold on until you start doing your evaluations because then you're going to find out who, who rises to the top, right, in this. And in this particular instance, when you see God being mentioned, it's God speaking about who? about Jesus. So it makes Jesus then the dominant subject, even though God is quite pre prevalent throughout the whole book. Yes. Okay, explain. You, you're right. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know that, but I mean, 
No, you're absolutely right. One of the, now we're not there yet, but I'm, I'm assuming starting next week we'll start digging out these Old Testament scriptures and actually going in and looking them at them. But it's very interesting because when you go back and drop into them, sometimes it's going to look as if he's actually talking to um, a specific person or at a specific time in history at that moment, but that it's not implying Jesus necessarily. Those at the moment may not have fully understood they were speaking into the future yet, possibly. And so it's very interesting when you go back in and look at these cross-references that are being quoted here, and the direct application is being made to Jesus, so that now you absolutely know that that was what was being implied, even though at the time they may have had an application for themselves in a different way. But it's really cool. So you're right to interpret, to go back then and interpret the Old Testament and see it through the the lens of the the foretelling, the for, you know the the prophetic word of the coming Christ. Yeah. That's right. That's exactly right. Actually, you, ha- you have to start there if you're speaking to a Hebrew-minded person because in their minds, uh, God is the trump of all trumps, right? And so in chapter 1, what do we see begin to happen with that position of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, although the Spirit is not spoken of, but what do we see begin to happen? It, ge- it gets developed to show the quality of the two rather than a superiority of God the Father over the Son, although he does have a designed role of the Father position. It's really hard for us to fully grab it, but I think as you develop your lists and do your word studies, you're going to begin to see it better. Okay, so we have Jesus, God said, angels, and better for chapter 1 so far. Are there others? Okay. No, okay. No, you're absolutely right that he didn't actually use the word Jesus. He used the word my son. Of course, we immediately go Jesus because we know that's who it is. But you're absolutely right. It's a good point. It's a good point to make. I like that. Heir and inheritance. Okay. All right. The word. Meaning God's word, I'm assuming, right? Did anybody of you mark creation? The world heaven and earth. Okay, good. I'm just going to put that in that way because I'm making all things right. Throne and kingdom. Okay. All right, so now the, the big question, when you did that, did you then follow it with, 
list making on your major words. Um, Kay did not assign us to do any list specific except for one, and that was on Jesus, right? So I'm going to focus on that one right now, but if you, if you do your inductive processes correctly, if you mark a keyword, you must make a list on it. That is the rule, right? And so in some ways, I kind of hesitate to tell you that that's the rule because then you'd be less generous in your marking of keywords. <laughs> And that's absolutely, that is a great point. And, and it is something that we actually try to teach over and over is sometimes something is only mentioned one time, but the entire book or the whole passage is all about that particular subject. That's part of discerning, you know, that you come to after you start making your list. But you start with the obvious. Start with the things that are repeated. Start making your list. And from that, sometimes other other things will show up to you in your mind. You'll go, oh, I didn't see this before. Now I see this. Now, what I wanted to do, though, was show you this. These are my lists on my paper. And, you know, we talk about um, list making being an objective tool, right? Because through list making, you... First of all, what you do is you're listing those bullet points and you're trying to weed out all the adjectives that are too descriptive, that's too much detail, right? Like the for this reason kind of a thing. Um, and you want to bring it down to just bullet points as much as you can without, without violating anything. You want to get all the information in there and then put your scripture reference after it. When you're done, then you've got a nice list that you can go through and systematically just look at all the major things that are being said about that particular subject that you identified. But the, one of the tools of it being objective is this. It also helps you to realize what is more significant or what is of more importance in any one chapter or another, right? So in this one, we have a couple of things that become major, right? We have, we have angels, right? I mean, every one of us right away said, what's chapter one? Oh, it's angels, right? Not even a bat of the eye. But I want you to just take a look at my sheet here. Can you see... The list on angels compared to the list on Jesus. Did you see that yourself when you did your observations and you went, whoa, were you kind of surprised when you got done? You went, well, there's not that much on angels in there, is there? Yeah, isn't that, isn't that surprising? That's why this makes it an objective tool. Because when you're done, you go, it's obvious. Who's the major subject in chapter one? Jesus. Um, Yeah. Right. Exactly. I did too. But in order to add, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Jesus is much better than the angels. Was my very first statement in verse one, in verse four, rather from from out of verse four, and and it, technically it should be underneath Jesus, but I put it underneath the angels too. Yeah. But all I'm saying, my demonstration here for you this morning is to show you the objectiveness of this tool. One of the additional benefits of doing list making is not just so that you make a list, but what you learn from observing it objectively. And, and in this case, what we see when we're done is the obvious, the obvious major subject here is Jesus, not angels. Even though angels is, is a major, we saw it right away. It's the one we all jump to. Now, I'm going to go back to the other subject to, of someone who said, well, isn't God 
really important here? And I'm going, yes, of course he's really important. But let's look at him compared to, to Jesus as well. Oh, sorry, I'm going to cover my other page up here. Here we go. So here's Jesus, and here's God. Can you see it? So although God's, we're not saying that this is a power play in our minds as to who's more important than someone else. We're saying in the author's writing of this book, who is his major subject, right? Jesus. And so visually here with an objective tool, you're able to now rest. It's kind of like just put your mind to rest. Find out what does it say, not what do you think, not how do you feel about it, not what is your partiality, but what do you see once you do the tool of marking and making a list. When you do, you step back, you can objectively look at that and go, Jesus is more important. That's the major subject here, right? And what? It you. And it's all on Jesus' side because God said this about who? Jesus. So the list becomes even this much longer. That is so true. Okay, so was that kind of beneficial for those of you who are still learning this process a little bit? It's helpful, I think, sometimes to understand why am I making lists? This is such a tedious process and, and of what value is it to me? Well, it helps you become objective about your, your, your subject matter that you're working with and it, it takes all the emotions out of it and you finish your work and when you're done you step back and you look at it and you go, oh, well that's obvious, right? Yes. That's absolutely true. That's exactly right. That's a good one. I like that. Very good. Okay, so now what we've, we've got our key words. One of the things Kay asked us to do, though, in overview was to do contrasting, right? And, and we're not going to go through the whole book and look at them. You did that on your own. So what I want to do, though, is narrow it down to just what kind of contrast did you see going on in Chapter 1. Contrast will also help you. as It's another objective tool to help you Pull to the surface exactly what the comparison is that's being made. So let's just do a few of those together for the sake of um, pulling out the things that you did, the work that you did. Okay, so we're going to look at contrasts. In just in chapter one. Okay, and now give me the verse, what it says, and then tell me how it's contrasting. Well, there actually are some really good ones. Okay, well, think on that. And let's let, think on that one, and then let's get back to you because that is a contrast. But you need to get it on your piece of paper there and give it to me real concisely, James. Okay. Okay. Now, I just want to say to you, this one's really an important thing. And one of the things you were supposed to have done here is have marked um, clocks on all of your time references. Did anybody, when you started looking at these time factors that God wrote long ago, did a timeline ever pop into your brain? I hope so. If not, I would recommend you give it a shot. Talk. Give yourself, you know, this is just a, this is a little tidbit for next week. Give yourself a shot. 
Look at what you see in chapter 1 and see if you can put it on a timeline. And see if that helps you to see this chapter, maybe even from an eschatology kind of a perspective, and to see if, there are, if, if it actually runs systematically in any way. Is there a systematic unfolding time-wise as to the events that are being portrayed in this uh, particular chapter? Yes. In the future, yeah. So he starts with what is, and then when he does it again, then what? Yes. And yes, okay, so let's do this. He spoke long, he spoke long ago, and that was in Prophets, right? And that was in one one, I think. And then now he spoke. Now he spoke in his son. Let's see. Let me write how it has spoken in these last days. In his son. All right, so there's your first, your first contrast. Now, very interesting, another thing comes up then, and Kay, I think Kay asked us this question about that phrase, in the last days. What does that tell you about the time frame that we live in right now? What is it referred to by God? These last days. We are now in the last days. Beginning when? After the, cruci- the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So once Jesus came, previously he had been speaking through the prophets, but from the time when Jesus a- appeared on the earth and began to speak his message and-, and went through those years of ministry and then went to the cross, from that point forward began the last days, right? And so we generally kind of just say from the cross forward, and that's sufficient. But technically actually starts from just before that when he is still on, in his ministry, right? Okay, so he has spoken to us in the last days in his son. So these are the last days. That's, I think, a significant point. Uh, when you're talking about other kinds of Bible studies, that particular reference in these last days or the last days is going to come up a lot. And so to know the definition of that, which is actually clearly defined for us right here. All right. Possibly, yeah. It's a little more, yes. Okay, in portions and in ways. Portions and ways. Many. (laughs) With, in the sun. Yeah. So it was different because the portions and ways are, are, you're just, you're getting more technical. I get it. Your, Your brain is going into, what does it mean, portions and ways? Right? And you're analyzing what that specifically means. Okay? Good. Okay. So I'm going to move that down a little bit because I got to. Oh, cool. Little by little, many times. 
I like that. I hadn't looked that one up. We aren't there yet, but that's good. Yeah. Right. Very cool. I love that. That's nice. Okay. So we're going to compare. Uh, Celeste, you said we're comparing the sun to the angels, right? And give me your verses. 1-4 for Jesus, for the sun. I need the verses for the sun and for the angels. So you contrasted which two verses? I know, she's going general. I'm saying give me verses that show the contrast. Okay, number four. Okay, so contrasting three and four, verse three and verse four, okay? And, and by the way, Celeste, I have it right here on my page, three and four contrasted. <laughs> Jesus made purification and sat down at the right hand of God. The contrast is angels are doing what? They are ministering servants set out to render service for those who will inherit salvation. I'm sorry, minus 14. Oops, sorry. I made that bigger contrast that he did something and he sits now. His, he, he finished, right? And now they are still ministering servants. So that's how I contrasted the, those two points. All right. And, uh, in seven, God says, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels ministers of flame of fire compared to, but of the sun, he says, your throne is Okay, very good. I like that better. Okay, okay. so the sun... The sun's throne and being on the throne is compared to angels as ministers. And then, okay, so Jesus on his throne is chapter 1, verse 9, maybe, or 8? Okay, 8. And angels as ministers is what? 7. 1, 7. Okay. All right. Good. Okay. 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 Jesus created heaven and earth. You're giving me two different contrasts here. Okay. Jesus created heaven and earth, and that's contrasted with something else. And we'll hold on to that for a second. But the next one is Jesus is forever. Okay, Jesus created heaven and earth, and then it's contrasted with Jesus will roll them up. Okay, so he created them, and he will roll them up. There's your contrast. Very good. Okay. And it is not the word created. I'm shortening it because I don't want to have to write... They are the work of your hands, and they are the, you know, it's just too lengthy. So I'm shortening that word to creative for the sake of my, my room on the board there. Okay, he laid the foundation of the earth. is too long to write when I can just say he created. Okay, all right, any other major points that you see?
that's, I don't know that that's a contrast, but that's, oh, oh, okay. Okay, okay, ministering, one are ministering angels, ministering, are ministering to, and the others are those who receive, those who inherit. Right, isn't that cool? Is that not a really good point to make out? That I mean, as far as a doctrine, one of the things that I do love about doing what we're doing here is although we're not focusing in on our understanding about angels, we are still learning some truths about angels. One of those truths that we just touched on is that angels are not the inheritors of salvation, right? And Jesus did not die for their salvation, And next chapter, we're going to come to see better how he came specifically for us. Yes. It's kind of put in a a little different way. If you're tempted to work with angels, realize they're your servants. Yes. Isn't that amazing? You are worshiping your own servant if you do that. In in the Old Testament, I think about where where there's the picture of the guy who is carving out um, images with wood. And he talks about how you're, with the same piece of wood, you cut out an idol that you worship and then you burn the rest of it on on your wood stove for cooking your meal. And it's like, what are you thinking, right? (laughs) Uh Oh, good one. Heinz, did you catch that? She said that it also shows us because Satan is an angel. He doesn't get a second chance. He doesn't get the salvation opportunity, right? And we were talking about angels earlier, and that's why I brought it up. And it's so true. I mean, his, and the, the, the question might be what? Yeah, how come angels don't get a second chance, right? Well, that's a good question. We're not in that subject right now, but if we were doing that subject matter, you know, we would need to develop our understanding of who were angels, where were they to begin with? What kinds of things were they in direct knowledge of because of their presence and being in the very presence of God, for instance? Um, their watching of the creation of the earth, being present when it was created, all these things. And then contrasting that with who is man? How was he designed and created? How is it different or the same of the rest of the creation? I mean, there needs to be some comparisons made there. I mean, it's a lengthy study, but very interesting. It kind of whets your appetite to want to know more about the angels, doesn't it? Yes, uh, Peter. Isn't that Peter? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And then there's another one, too. And is it Jude also, I think? All right. Now, all right, let's move on now to looking at a list on Jesus because I think this is going to be really insightful to us to lay foundation for the work that you're going to be doing next week in particular. Um, la- uh, one of the things I always love to do when I'm marking key words, and in particular when I mark a word like Jesus, I look for all of the other titles that are given to me. And how many of you guys have heard me say more than once, when you see a title on Jesus, what should you do? 
mark it and look it up. Look up the original language to see what, how is that title descriptive and how does it suit or fit the context in which you are reading. So as you're looking at these different titles, how is Jesus called? Before we start making just a generic list on the points of, or qualities of Jesus, let's talk about um, his titles. What are his titles that you see in there? How, well, first one, we see him, son of God, right? He's the son or God's son. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to give you some verses. Uh, verse 2, 5, and 8, we see him referred to as the son, okay? Pardon? Yes, give me Yoshiko's. Let me see her work. Uh-oh. Heir of all things. Now, that's a description of him, not a title, though. And so hang on to that, because when we get back, I want you to give it to me again so we don't forget to write that one down. Heir is not a title. Not like son. He is called the son or the son of God. What are some other titles in here? God. <laughs> I love it. His title is God, and he actually is called O God. Yeah. Right? All right. Verse, verse, eight. verse 8. Thank you. All right. And what else? There's another one that's real obvious. Lord. That's right. He's called Lord. And did you see how it's written? All capital letters, L-O-R-D, all capital. Do you think that's by accident that he's given that specific title? No. We need to find out why it's all in capital letters and why is that title of Jesus conveyed to us. As Heinz has brought out, he isn't referred to as Jesus. He's called, at this point, the Son, God's Son, God, and Lord. Very interesting. Does that list alone begin to make you say, interesting? Now, there's a couple other, there's a couple of other things that are almost titles, and it's kind of along the lines of what Heinz is about, talking about him being the heir, but he says, um, let's see, here it is in verse um, five, and the reason it caught my attention, again, is it's in capital letters, when God's speaking about him, he says, today I have what? Begotten. begotten you. Are there verses that you know where Jesus is referred to as the begotten son? Give me a verse. Okay. Go ahead. Give it to me. There you go. That whosoever. So the begotten son is a title, is it not? Begotten. So we can put begotten up here. Now, what I think is also really cool is when you marked your time references, as Craig mentioned earlier, he talks about the begotten son in verse 5, and then he, he gives another reference, and when again he brings the firstborn into the world. Now, is the firstborn also a title, that he is the firstborn son or the firstborn of? or the fir How often do we see him 
with those together with his name, the firstborn. So we're going to give that one at a, a least a higher on the mark. Whoops. I've got to spell it, though. I do know how to spell firstborn. <laughs> okay. And very interesting to me, let's follow the flow of thought in here. And I'm pointing this out to you because I think it's going to be helpful you to, to you in your homework for next week. Okay? So pay attention here. Having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So he's making a reference to the fact that Jesus is the one called the begotten, right? And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And, and, what does and do? It's a conjunction. It connects it to the previous voice. He's in the same flow of thought. He has not broken it yet. And when he, God, again brings who? The firstborn. So what has he just done with the word begotten? He's connected begotten to firstborn. Did you see it? If you didn't, mark it. Put a little circle, draw a line to, to each other so that you won't miss that because in your homework this week, I think it will be very declarative. The work that she's going to give you to do, I felt like it was still lacking just a little bit of immediate context validation. And the, really the understanding of these two titles is right here by the flow of thought. So if you connect those two, that he's making a, a connection that he's called the begotten and the firstborn and they are, and, and it's, Basically, he, he, he makes them synonymous with one another. Does he not? He says he is the firstborn, and when I bring, when, he's the begotten, and when I bring the firstborn into the world, then this. And he gives more information. Okay, so the begotten and the firstborn. Okay, so those are five and six, right? All right, so that gives us some titles. Okay, I call those the titles. Now, what you want to do now is begin to develop your list on facts. What did you learn about Jesus from this chapter? These, this is just going to lay a foundation for us that just gets us started. And I can, you can see at this point, by the time you get, get done with this list, this is why I never could get done with my homework this week. Because one thing took me to another thing, took me to, I just couldn't stop looking for more. And one thing triggered another verse in another place. And I was just, it was craziness in my mind, but it was like so good. And I thought, this is the foundation for the book. When you start a writing as an author, if you're going to write a letter to a company and make a complaint, what is the first thing out of your mouth on that page? This is my problem, right? You, you bring up in the very first introduction of your letter what your primary focus is, what your most important issue is. You might then elaborate on a few other things and say, oh, by the way, it's like going to the doctor. You know, you, get the, you might hit the first thing first, but then, oh, by the way, while I'm here, would you mind looking at this? And I think my elbow's not working, and my, my left toe is messed up. And, you know, you go to the smaller things. But you, ha you hit the first and most important thing first, right? So in the writing like this, do you think that the very first chapter is probably this author's most important foundational truth? And you all thought it was just about angels. 
And the reality is this is not about the angels. This is about who Jesus is in comparison to the angels. And what it does is it exalts him as the superiority over that. And now we're going to know why. Why? Because of this. He is God's son. He is God. He is the Lord. He is the begotten. And he is the firstborn. That is why. So now let's develop that. What do we see? Give me some other points. We'll start with Yoshiko because she came up with, um, with one about the heir of all things. And give me that reference first. Heir of all things. Okay. All right. Tell me what else. Spoken. Okay, but we have to do it the way it says. Remember, we're not ready for interpretation. So God has spoken, okay, has spoken to us in his son. And that's one, 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 two. Okay, sorry. All right. All right. He, okay, give me the reference. Okay, so we're going to put on here God through him made the world. One, two, okay. He is the radiance of God's glory. I know it. The, okay, he upholds all things. Now, very interesting. Now, so, now, okay, so you brought this up, and what you did is you hit on one verse, and you saw a multitude of points in there, right? So guess what your homework is going to be focused on next week? That verse. You're going to spend a good deal of time next week looking up cross-referencing and doing word studies to really develop your understanding of what is being said in that one single verse about who Jesus is. Yes, yes. Okay, he made appear. I love that. He made he made purification of sin. Yeah, but you know what's really cool? If you look at this, you guys, the flow of thought here. He made purification of sins, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Do you see the next verse? Having become... Whoa, now wait a minute. How does having become, that makes, sounds like Jesus 
wasn't one thing and then became something else, but what was the catalyst through which he became something else? Well, making purification for sin and sitting down at the right hand. And they're together, by the way. Don't separate them. It's not just one thing without the other. It's the both of them. And you're going to see better when you do a timeline on this. And I'm hoping you all will do that this week. But you're going to see the, the connection between how that making purification and sitting down at the right hand of God makes him better than in this particular uh, case. It becomes much better than the angels by that act. Okay? He may purification. Not that he wasn't better than them to begin with. Okay? So don't, don't read into that anything. He made purification of sin and sat at right hand of God. Okay. Actually, that is in fact what you see when you're done with this exercise is that you just see all of this going on. Um, I want to go on into what um, was brought up earlier about the God said statements, though. In verse 1, 5, and 1, 6, and 8, and 10, and so forth, those all are God said statements. In other words, remember how he said earlier, long ago he spoke in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, little by little, right? And now he's spoken to us through his son. And so here he says, God said of him. So he's making actually a reference to back when he had spoken previously concerning the son, right? So what does God say about him? God, God said of him, and let's list some things. You are my son. When? Today. Just don't forget to put that in there. Today, I have begotten thee. Now, see, because this is a profound little point for the, for the scholars of biblical insights and those, those ecumenical councils that met. This would have been one of those trigger points where you say, is Jesus equal to God or is he a just a part of God or is he, I mean, they, tr- they tried to define him better when they went through these ecumenical councils. In here, what we see is in this particular statement, you could take that to say, oh, well, before he wasn't his son, now he is his son. Or before he wasn't God, now he is God. I mean, there, there could be some really weird, twisted views on this until you develop it, right? Once you develop through your word studies and all your cross-referencing so that you bring everything, all your information to the plate, then you're able to see what that statement is actually saying. It's actually bringing up a subject that's not addressed and it's not stated. It's a subliminal message that apparently these readers totally understood and uh, and jumped right to in their brains. But you and I have to be drawn there. We have to be pulled there because we don't fully understand these words, for instance, like the begotten. What by what does the begotten refer to? What is that making a reference to? And then he says, and and then there's an and, right? And then the next statement says what? 
Okay, I will be a father to him. He will be a father, or he will be a son to me. And when God does what with him? Now, this part is really cool. When he does bring him again into the world, right? What? Let all the angels worship him. That's in verse 6, right? And what else? Drop into verse 8. I mean, because it's going to elaborate on the fact of the angels will worship him, right? And they're always going to go to another subject. And in, in verse 8, he says, what about him? Okay. So he says, when I bring him again, the firstborn again, into the world, angels will worship him. Your throne is forever. And? And, and so then it describes all that. Goes on and describes it. Now drop down to 12. Same yesterday, today, and forever, and, but, hold on, let me look at it again, maybe I gave you the wrong verse. Mm -mm, hold on a second, hold on, I'm sorry, I must have given you the wrong one. No, it is there, very first verse, verse 12, chapter 12, or verse 12, the very first sentence. You will roll them up. What is he going to roll up? So if you're thinking of this from the perspective of a timeline, what happens? Angels are worshiping. He's got a throne forever, and he's going to roll up the earth. He's going to roll it up like a mantle. So if you're doing eschatology and you're thinking on this, on a timeline, you're wanting to timeline it, what, are your, what, are you, what kind of events are you seeing he's speaking of? There you go. It's talking about his throne forever, talking about the angels worshiping, and you're talking about the rolling up of the earth so that it's done. It will be done away with. Isn't that amazing? Would you call this at this point by just by the, the things that we looked at? Do you see a systematic flow as far as on a timeline of how he's unfolding this message of Jesus, who he is, what he did. And it starts with the, with the not, they don't call it propitiation, they called it um, purification. I, wanna, I keep wanting to put that as propitiation, so forgive me if I do that. But when he makes purifications for sins and sits down at the right hand of the throne, this makes him the begotten, the firstborn, and then some then specific things are then going to happen. All of this is in relationship to showing how he is better than the angels. Very, very interesting. All right, so you got a lot to think on, guys. You do. What, go, now, now I'm going to just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add one more verse. Go to 13. In the meantime, What? So on a timeline, what is Jesus doing in the meantime? He's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God until God makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. 
So you can timeline that, right? All right. I'm excited to see what you guys are going to do because I want to show that to you guys next week. And as we do, we're going to use the, that little timeline that you all are going to do. And I know it's extra homework, but I think you're going to find it fun. I think it'll actually be more enlightening to you to do that part of your work next week than anything else. It was for me anyway, um, just because I'm a visual person. And once I put that together, then the homework actually start will start to make more sense. I didn't do all the homework, but I... I jumped ahead and read the questions and said, oh, okay. <laughs> and she takes you some, to some cross-references that help strengthen your insights once you get there, okay? So, all right. Thank you guys for all your input. Great, great beginning here. We are early, yes, we are. Can you believe it? I know, highly.